Section 2 of Boston Blackie Stories Around the Opium Lamp by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Story About Dad Morgan Boston Blackie, the master cracksman of the mob of safe-blowers that had given the detective force the most strenuous and profitless month's work in its history, emptied tray after tray of diamonds into a chamois-skin sack held by his youthful assistant, the Cushion's Kid. The hall was a gigantic one. The door of the big strong-box lay wrecked on the floor. Inside the safe, the stock of gems that had attracted thousands of Christmas shoppers to the window display of Ludstrom and Company, lay at the mercy of the thieves. Rapidly, Blackie searched the safe, throwing aside gold bracelets, watches, and costly trinkets of every description. He took only diamonds and money. Both are well-nigh impossible to identify. The crime was a climax in effrontery. Forty feet away from the safe on the main street of the metropolis, the night traffic of the city flowed past the store's front doors. Within half a block, the presses of three big morning dailies had just commenced to roar. On the corner, an eager crowd of newsboys, a dozen or more placid-faced nighthawks, and a couple of policemen laughed and bandied jests as they waited for a paper and the owl cars. In the midst of all this, Blackie had cracked the safe undetected. With a skillfully made skeleton key, he and Cushions had entered the candy store next door to the jewelry firm. In a half hour, they had burrowed through the wall of plaster and lath and were beside the jewelry safe. The glazed windows of the office in which the safe stood hid them from the street. It was Blackie's task to blow the safe without breaking the glass. With the manufacturer's plan of the safe before him, he had spent long hours studying the problem, computing the risk. Blackie was a crook who reduced everything to simple arithmetic. For a $1,000 job, he took a certain amount of risk. For $10,000, exactly ten times that risk. But if the trick involved ten times the unit of danger, and promised but nine times the money, it was abandoned. The Ludstrom job was more than risky. It was all but foolhardy. But though the danger was great, the loot was greater, and now the trick was accomplished. The noise of the explosion, slight though it was, had been effectively drowned by the staccato explosions of an automobile engine apparently stalled a few doors away. Emptying the last of the diamond drawers, Blackie motioned the cushions back through the wall and noiselessly followed. Standing at the street door of the candy store, they stopped, listening. Seemingly intent on his reluctant carburetor, Jimmy the Joke whistled cheerfully as he worked, giving them thereby the safety signal. Blackie unlocked the door, stepped out, and turned to relock it. In the middle of a bar, Jimmy's tune changed suddenly, sharply. Now it sounded the dreaded warning, Coppers. The safe-blower turned the key like a flash and stepped away from the door toward the middle of the sidewalk. He was too late. A gray-clad Pinkerton watchman had turned the corner less than a dozen feet away and had seen the cracksman at the door. Cushions, white to the lips, slipped his right hand into his left sleeve, where he carried a revolver after the fashion of the gunman of the Chinese tongs. The watchman reached for his whistle. There was a tense half-second in which life and death hung on equally balanced scales. Then Blackie strode forward, gripping Cushions' elbow in imperative negation as he passed. 
"'Why, here's the very man we want,' he cried out, glad surprise in every tone. "'Watchman, I'm Mr. Archibald, manager of our other candy store on Mission Street. Here's my card. Our cashier telephoned me an hour ago that she was not sure she had locked the safe and was worried about it. I thought it best to come down and make sure. It was locked, but, my man, it might not have been. That brings me to my business with you. We are carrying considerable money just now, and I'd appreciate it if you would give us a little extra care until after the holidays. The safe is in plain sight from the windows, you see. He motioned the watchman to the window of the candy store and indicated the safe, which was manifestly intact and locked. Blackie jingled the keys he had used in locking the door and dropped them into his pocket. Just look out for us for the next fortnight, and I drop in and present that card to the cashier on Christmas Eve. I think she will have a little token of our appreciation for you. Have a cigar? Good night. Chauffeur, drive me home. 1816 Page Street. The address was spoken loud enough for the watchman to hear. Blackie and Cushion stepped into the car. Jimmy threw in the clutch, and it leaped forward. Behind them, the slow-witted Pinkerton underling stared at the card in his hand in indecision. It bore the name B.S. Archibald, and the address was 1816 Page Street. That was where the gentleman had told the chauffeur to take him. The lingering doubt vanished. "'Gee, that was a close shave,' the man muttered to himself, wiping his dripping brow. "'I hadn't no doubt I'd run foul of a gang of burglars right in the act.' I might have known he was too well-dressed and educated-like to be a burglar. Suppose I tried to arrest him, the manager of the store. They'd have given me the sack, sure, at the office. A man can't be too careful in this business. He's got to go slow. Anyway, I've got the number of their auto if I ever want it. Yes, the safe's sure all right. He studied it carefully, and then, satisfied, passed on down the block, trying the doors. The automobile sped on unhindered toward the outskirts of the city. In a conveniently isolated spot, Jimmy stopped the machine, detached the false number dangling behind, and substituted the real one. It was a precaution invariably required by Blackie. The car was left in a garage where Blackie was known as a wealthy Easterner with decided inclinations toward the night sports of the idle rich. Turning into a side street, the three let themselves into a detached cottage with a large, vacant lot on either side. They had rented it furnished. With a big job on hand, the mob leader did not care to risk the danger of meeting each night in the comparative publicity of a known opium joint. K.Y. Luz, fourth member of the mob, had the layout ready, the bowls hot, and a half-dozen yen pokes, cooked pills, waiting to be smoked. He had not participated in that night's expedition, as it was a part of Blackie's creed never to endanger more men than he actually needed. Had his companions gotten into trouble, it would have been Lou's task to free them. The pipe made the circle twice, easing the strain on the tense nerves of the men before the night's work was mentioned. Then Lou's asked the question, "'What luck?' he queried. "'Rotten luck, but great results,' answered Blackie. He drew the chamois bag from an inner pocket and laid it beside the layout. "'All sparks,' he continued. "'A couple of thousand in dough, too. It's a big haul. There'll be a frightful squawk in the morning. We're done in this town. Undercover here is our program until it's safe to travel. Then a jump to New York, for it'll take old Rosenbaum himself to fence as big a lot of stones as are in that bag.' 
One of the eye's watchmen stopped us, but I slipped him a quick package of bullcon, and for fear of making a blunder, he let us go. Give me a couple of pills out of turn, and I'll go down and plant these diamonds where they'll be safe in case the impossible happens and this place is raided. While he was gone, Cushions related the experiences of the night. And after making the copper believe he was manager of the store, Blackie promised him a Christmas present for guarding the safe. Can you beat it? concluded the youngster, as Blackie re-entered the attic where the layout was spread. I wonder which will be the worst disappointment, the cigar Blackie gave him, or the Christmas present he promised him, chimed in Jimmy the Joke. Cushions laughed. The other two, as usual, bore their companion's alleged humor in grim silence. For an hour they smoked without exchanging a dozen words, then the opium having brought them the temporary contentment and relaxation which costs such a bitter price in the end, little snatches of conversation began to enliven the circle. A story from Luz, a few of the joke's lugubrious witticisms, an anecdote from the kid at the expense of a green pickpocket who had tried to crack wise, use thieves' slang, and not knowing what he was saying, had floundered into all manner of pitfalls. Blackie lay silently staring through unseeing eyes, unconscious of the merriment around him. "'Blackie is as funny as one of Jimmy's jokes,' said Luz at last. "'What's the matter, Chief? You look like we were all inside, looking out through the bars, instead of lying here with a fresh can of hop just opened, and enough sparks planted down below to let Broadway know we're in town when we hit the bright lights in little old New York.' I was thinking of different Christmases I have spent, Blackie answered, the faraway opium stare still in his eyes. One in particular I was thinking about. I was in the stir penitentiary, and something happened on Christmas night, and I've never been able to forget it quite. Cushions started me thinking about it by talking about Christmas presents a while ago. It was while I was doing that five-spot in California, he began, after Luz, always politic, had given him two pills in succession. They had more men than cells at the prison, and had to use big dormitories holding a couple of hundred cons apiece in order to house all the prisoners. I was in one of the dormitories, being a short-timer with only a few months left to do. There was an old man bunking next to me with whom I got to be friendly. He was no thief. He was as much out of place in stripes as I would be in a copper's harness, star and all. He never should have been in the penitentiary. That's the trouble with the courts. They don't use any judgment in sentencing men, and so make criminals instead of curing them. I rob a bank, for instance, because that's my business. I go to the penitentiary. You rob another bank because your wife or children need a doctor or food or a roof to shelter them, and you'll work in stripes right beside me. When we come out, we're both criminals, usually. The old man and I got chummy. Morgan was his name. Dad Morgan, we called him. He was 69 years old and was just starting on a five-year jolt. His hands and deep-lined face showed he had worked, and hard, too, all his life. He was doing time because he'd borrowed $500 from a loan shark on his little home, saying it was unencumbered when in reality it was already mortgaged. He couldn't give the money back, 
so they sent him over the road for false pretenses. It was months before he told me his story, and then it came out piecemeal. He had a daughter, an only child. Her mother was dead, and he had taken care of the girl ever since she was born. He didn't just live for her. She was his life, all of it. At the time he was arrested for bilking the moneylender, she was engaged to be married and came to him for money for a trousseau. I gathered from between the lines in his talk that she felt she was marrying above her station in life and was very much in love. Dad Morgan didn't have the money she needed. But father, I can't go to rob without clothes like a beggar girl, she told him. I wish I were dead. Then she began to cry. That settled it. Dad went out and got the money from the loan shark, and the girl kissed him, and they were both happy. I would have paid the money back, every cent of it, the old man told me in his quavering voice, if they'd given me a chance to work. I'm good for several years yet, and I was waiting to take a job on one of the aqueduct gangs when they arrested me. Maybe I did wrong, but I didn't intend to. You see, Millie needed the money, and there was no one but her old dad to get it for her. That was his whole philosophy of life. Whatever Millie wanted, he had to get. One night he showed me her picture. He kept it in a little old locket hung around his neck. One look at the photo would have given me the key to the whole story, even if the old fellow's unintentional disclosures hadn't betrayed it. Women sure are a puzzle. There's nothing halfway about them. They're either all right or all wrong. Pure gold or common brass. The brass ones help fill the penitentiaries. But I'd rather have one right woman who loved me working to free me than the best lawyer money could hire. Old Morgan's picture showed a pretty doll-like girl with big coils of yellow hair and a petulant, willful mouth. There was something I just can't describe in her eyes, too, that tipped her off to me. Vanity and selfishness were stamped on her face plain as a cattle brand. But old dad, she was perfect. After her father was arrested, she visited him once at the jail. She cried and talked about the disgrace he had brought on them and how noble Rob had been about it. They were going to be married right away and go to San Francisco to live. She begged him to plead guilty and avoid the publicity of a trial. That is, if you were guilty, Daddy she said, because it might come out in court that you gave me the money for a trousseau, and I know that would mortify Rob terribly. He's so sensitive. And so the old man pleaded guilty, offering no excuse or explanation, and came up to the big house with his five years to put in. Millie lived in Frisco, just an hour's ride from the prison, and when I first knew Morgan he was still rejoicing because he had been sent there where Millie could come over and see him on visiting days. During visiting hours on Saturdays and Sundays, the captain's runner came through the gate with passes for the lucky ones who had friends in the reception room. The runner came into the yard where the men were loafing, being off duty at those hours, and called the numbers from his slip. Then the lucky ones, all smiles and happiness for the moment, took their passes and went out for a half hour with wives and mothers and children, everything we cons mean when we say the outside. And how the neglected ones envied those whose numbers were called. 
It used to get me sometimes, too, and I was an old-timer at the game, even then. An hour before the visitors were due, old Dad would plant himself where he could get the first glimpse of the runner as he came through the gate. There he waited, anxious, expectant, picking flecks of dust off his striped coat or brushing and rebrushing his shoes with an old bandana handkerchief. Finally, in would come the runner, a sheaf of passes in his hand. Dad's number was 22492. Often there would be a number commencing with the same figures as Morgan's. Number 22,400, the runner would call slowly. At each word, the old fellow rose from his bench, inch by inch, his dim old eyes lit up like a boy's, with a hope in his heart. And 76, the runner would finish, while Dad dropped back down on his seat with shaking hands and an agony of disappointment in his eyes. This went on, week after week, month after month. Every visiting day, Dad was there, bathed, clean, and brushed long before the visitor's hour, and he waited long after there was the slightest chance of any more passes. He always took his place on the corner bench, hopeful, and always left it at lock-up time, utterly crushed, with drooping shoulders and the eyes of a hurt animal. Each week found him a little frailer, a little more tremulous. He was failing fast, and we boys all knew it. The hop lamp burned low, and cushions at a signal from Luz rose noiselessly and filled it from the can of peanut oil. Blackie went on with his tale. Opium had taken him back to the days of which he told. His half-closed eyes saw only the prison yard, walled in on every side, and hundreds of striped figures tramping, tramping endlessly, back and forth, with the hopeless restlessness of caged creatures. Sometimes Dad got a letter from Millie, but as the months dragged by, they came at longer and longer intervals, he continued. He gave me one to read once, a short, perfunctory note, hastily written and as chilling as a slap in the face, but the old man read into the lines what had never been there. I used to humor him, praise the girl, inventing excuses for her failure to visit him. That was the reason he liked me better than the rest. I always pretended to believe in her and her love for her old father in stripes. It never for an instant occurred to him to criticize or blame her, we spent hours thinking up reasons for her absence. Her husband needed her at home. She had friends to be entertained. And then there was the baby, for old Dad was a grandfather now. In rainy weather, of course, she couldn't bring the baby out. And on bright, sunshiny days, Millie and Rob naturally would want to take him for a sunning in the park. These and a thousand other excuses we invented. I encouraging him and helping him to fight down the doubt that he would not let grow in his tortured old mind. We talked about the kid, wondering whether he had blue eyes or brown. Millie never thought to say in any of her letters. And then sometimes he would open the locket and gaze at it with love-hungry eyes, hoping that the youngster looked like my little girl. Before the holidays, the old man was taken sick. He had a cough, and at night his breathing was terrible to hear. The doctor said asthma, and gave him some ill-smelling stuff to smoke in a pipe. That was like the croaker. 
He'd give a man a pill to mend a broken bone and a pipe full of weed for a broken heart. One day, just before Christmas, Morgan came to me, trembling like a leaf, but with eyes bright with happy excitement. She's coming, Blackie, he cried, waving a letter at me. She's coming on Christmas Day, and she's going to bring the baby. Do you understand? She's going to bring the little fellow over here to see his old granddad. Maybe they'll let me hold him on my knee. Oh, Blackie, what a Christmas I'm going to have. Think of it. I'm going to see my little girl and her boy at last. I shook his hand, patted him on the back, and enthused with him. There was fear in me. I knew he couldn't stand much more disappointment without losing all hope. And once a man loses that, the better part of him is dead. Still, I argued that the girl couldn't fail him on Christmas Day, not even a girl with those petulant, selfish, pouting lips. Christmas Day came. A bright, sunshiny, glorious day. Even a penitentiary's bolts and bars and bitter, rankling hatreds disappear under the spell of the Christmas spirit. Guards and convicts both feel it and greet each other with a smile and a nod on that one day. Dad was like a kid going to his first school picnic. He spent the whole morning cleaning his clothes and getting barbered. He even got a man in the tailor shop to crease his striped trousers. He had a merry greeting for everyone. He gave away all his carefully saved tobacco, and when I protested at this generosity, he told me he wanted all the boys to have just as perfect a Christmas as his was to be. You know, a little gift, even a sack of tobacco. That shows someone is thinking kindly of you. Means a lot to a man in here, Blackie, he said. And after I've seen my little Millie and her boy, I won't care if I ever have tobacco again. Only two more hours to wait, Blackie, but every minute seems a week. At last, the gates opened, and the runner came through with a thick packet of passes. There were a lot among us who were not forgotten that Christmas day. Old Dad was perfectly sure that at last he was to get his reception. He edged up to the front of the crowd that surrounded the runner. If he had been a millionaire instead of a convict, his face couldn't have beamed with greater happiness. One by one, the runner cried the numbers, and each time someone stepped forward, seized his pass, and hurried off. There were only a dozen left, then six, then three, and still there had been no call from Morgan, number 22492. Dad stood facing the runner with trembling, sagging knees, and the look in his eyes was pitiful to see. The last pass was gone. Dad had not been called. He wilted like a flower thrown into a blazing grate. Then the runner drew a white slip from his pocket. Number 22,492, Morgan, he called. Dad leaped forward like a racehorse when the barrier rises. He couldn't speak, but he held out both trembling hands toward the slip of paper that was more to him than anything that gold can buy. The runner put it into his hands gently. It ain't a reception, Dad, he said kindly. I wished it was. It's just an order to report to the captain tomorrow for change of work. He's going to give you a swell, easy job for a Christmas present. And say, Dad, I think sure you'll get that reception tomorrow. Sure I do. 
I got a hunch. I put my arm around Dad and led him over to the bench. He hung a dead weight on me. She didn't come. She didn't come, he said over and over to himself. She didn't come to see her old dad, and it's Christmas Day. I sat with him on the bench a long, long time. I tried to comfort him. I lied to him, saying that there was such a crowd of visitors that day, many had been turned away till the next day, and that Millie certainly was among them. He didn't even hear me, I think. The last half hour had made him an old man, very feeble. Just before lock-up time, he looked up at me. I mustn't be unreasonable just because I'm, I'm so disappointed, he said. Millie would have come here if she could. Maybe Rob or the baby is sick, or maybe something's happened. You know Millie would surely have been here if she could, possibly, don't you, Blackie? Sure, Dad, I said, but I had to turn my head away. All that evening up in the dormitory he lay on his bunk, staring at the picture in his locket, while the cons, light-hearted in that one day's forgetfulness, frolicked about the room. His asthma was worse. Every breath was an effort. I hope she's had a happy day, he said to me just before taps sounded and the lights went out. I hope she hasn't worried because she couldn't get over today. I've been thinking tonight of the other Christmases we've had together, when she was just a little tot on my knee, and his voice failed him, and he turned away his face to hide the tears that were dropping on his white beard. Damn that girl! came involuntarily from cushions. Then, realizing that he had voiced his thought, he dropped back, red and embarrassed. You don't need to. She did that for herself, son, Blackie went on. There isn't much more to tell. Away along in the night, I was wakened by a horrible, gurgling, choking sound. It reminded me of the noise a man who strangled himself with his suspenders made in a cell next to mine long ago. I sat up, wide awake. The noise continued. Other men were awake, too, whispering and wondering where it came from, for the room was in black darkness. Suddenly I thought of Dad. I leaped out of my bunk and struck a match to a paper spill. By its light I saw old Dad Morgan lying on his bunk, gasping for breath. His eyes were glazed. He was unconscious. My call brought a dozen men to his bunk. They propped him up with pillows while I bawled for the guard. When he finally heard me and came to the window, angry at the racket inside, I had hard work to convince him that the man was sick enough to necessitate routing out the doctor at that hour of the night. Finally he went away to the hospital, and after a long time came back with two trustees and a stretcher. The doctor had sent word to bring the sick man over to the hospital. The big steel doors were unbarred, and the trustees came in. Around old Dad's bunk, half the convicts in the room were kneeling, some making and burning paper torches, while others bathed his face and worked his arms up and down. The hospital trustee laid his hand on the old man's breast, then put his ear to his heart. He's dead, boys, he said. Poor old Dad. He's done his time quick. They laid him tenderly on the stretcher and crossed his hands on his breast. 
In one of them was the locket with Millie's picture. Then they carried him away. We never saw him again, but two days later they took him out to cell house seven, the prison burying ground. And he's lying out on the sunny hillside now, doing his time, like you and I and all of us will do it sometime, boys. Maybe he's better off. He must be at peace there. And maybe he's dreaming, untroubled, of the Millie he thought he knew, but who never existed. The day they buried him, a letter came from her to her father. She said Rob had decided to have their Christmas dinner in the middle of the day instead of the evening, so of course she hadn't been able to keep her promise for Christmas Day. Then she hoped he wasn't disappointed, and said she'd try to get over on New Year's. When I heard that letter, I thanked God that old Dad was living at peace out on that brown hill. Centuries out there are shorter than the first half hour after he knew Millie had failed him on Christmas Day. If there is such a thing as justice or right anywhere, here or in some other world, that old man has a lot coming to him, said Cushions reverently. I wish the four of us had his chances on that last great day when the graves in Cell House 7 will open, answered Blackie, as Luz blew out the opium lamp and put away the layout. End of the story about Dad Morgan by Jack Boyle